You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, as we've uh, been going through this weekend, uh, the theme of the weekend is rhythms. And so we've been talking about those rhythms, those things that we do to enjoy Jesus, the things God has given us to help us grow in him and to love him more and to enjoy him as we should. And so we'll kind of continue in that today, uh, this morning. We're going to talk about the state of your faith. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the state of your faith. And when it comes to faith, there is um, there's some problems with how we often think of our faith in Jesus as Christians. We will sometimes think of our faith as a finished product instead of a work in progress. And when we're confused about what stage we're actually in, then it changes the whole way we approach everything. Everything is thrown off. Um, give you an example. We're probably all familiar with that phrase that kids like to say on a long car ride. Uh, what is that phrase? Are we there yet? And I used to see this in movies and chuckle to myself. That's funny. This is not a laughing matter. Children actually do this. Um, and it doesn't even matter how long the car ride is. It could just be up the street. There's still an are we there yet. And it really makes you want to say, we're not, but you can get out here. Uh, which you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that, though, because it's illegal. But it's not just kids who do that. Uh, adults do this, too, where we're always wondering, have we reached the end of our journey. Um, you know, when I'm driving somewhere and I'm looking at GPS, I could have just looked at it and seen that it said 20 minutes. I'm still going to keep looking at it 30 seconds later, just wondering, are we there yet? How close are we? We're always trying to f- figure out where we're at. Or when we're at work and the day's winding down, we sometimes will look at the clock more than the work that we're actually doing, which I think makes time move slower. I can't prove it scientifically, but it feels that way. We're always wondering, are we there yet? And, and here's what happens. What happens when we actually have arrived at a destination? We relax, right? Because we're good. That part of the journey is over. We've arrived. Um, the problem then is, if you already think you've arrived before you have, that means that you will relax too early, right? And so when it comes to our faith in Jesus, what I want to drive home is this. Just because we believe doesn't mean that we've arrived. We assume that faith is this one-time event that just gets us entry into the kingdom. It's just this one-time thing that we look back on. And I I don't want you to get me wrong. When we believe in Jesus, there are eternal realities that shift. We are justified. We're seen as righteous in his eyes, forgiven of our sins. We we have new hearts. We uh, interact with him in a new way. So don't get me wrong. We are saved by faith. But just because we believe doesn't mean we've arrived. And if we treat our faith as a finished product instead of a work in progress, then our faith will be neglected. We will relax way too early because we'll think we've arrived. And so I want to look at two principles about our faith in this text that we read, 1 Thessalonians 3. And the first one is this. Uh, Number one is this. Your faith needs work. Your faith needs work. Just to be clear, what I do not mean is that Jesus needs your good works added to what he's already done in order to save you. That's not what I'm saying. We are saved by faith uh, alone. We are saved by grace through faith. I'm just saying faith isn't this one-time event that we just look back on. Faith is now a lens that we see the whole world through. Faith is the fuel for every good work. Um, uh, Scripture talks about uh, uh, the righteous live by faith. 
or from faith unto faith. Faith is uh, the, the totality of our Christian life rests on the faith in Jesus. So, so my question for you would be, how would you answer if I asked you, how's your faith? If the first thing we do is just look back to that one time where we just walked the aisle or, or maybe just that time when we were baptized or maybe when we prayed a prayer after somebody, um, I want you to think of faith as more all-encompassing. How is your faith right now? Um, Paul, Paul wants to see what the Thessalonians' faith is like in the text we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians um, 3. And we won't have time to, you know, deeply examine every single verse. But what's happening in the book of Thessalonians, Thessalonica is a place that Paul and others went and they shared the gospel. They, they talked about the good news of Jesus. People trusted Jesus. People put their faith in him. They were converted. And what happened was there was a lot of persecution. People were not happy that Jesus was being preached. It's strange, but a reality that sometimes the good news isn't welcome. And so what happens is they get pushed out of there. So now you have these brand new Christians, and Paul is concerned about them. He's wondering, okay, they're these brand new Christians. I know they put their faith in Jesus. I wonder how they're doing. He, he wants to know. And so he sends Timothy to check on them. And, and here's what we see, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Paul says, So when we could stand it no longer... We thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Paul sends Timothy almost like a, a doctor making a house call, right, to check on how they're doing, right, to, to make a, a diagnosis and, and to um, give them a, a dose of what they need for their spiritual health so they can continue to grow. Um, but the fact that he's sent to check on their faith should tell us something about the nature of faith, that faith is something that needs to be sustained and something that needs to be checked up on. Because somebody might say, why, why would Paul be checking in on the Thessalonians' faith, is there something about the Thessalonians in particular? Well, I think it's something that's true of all of us, and that something is this, that we are fragile, and that our faith is fragile. I wonder if you ever think of yourself as fragile. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. There's a reason that there are no superhero movies where the superhero is fragile and weak and easy to hurt. Superhero movies, people are, of course, strong and durable. And that's how we like to think of ourselves, especially dudes. There's some of us who, if we did this, there would be no change in what our arm looks like. But we still think of ourselves not as fragile, but as strong and durable. But what I want to say is, if we don't understand ourselves that way, then we won't be able to see the reality. We'll walk around with a kind of pride that we really shouldn't have. It is okay for us to admit weakness, especially when God is the one telling us that we have it. Um, when a, when a new child is born, of course, babies are fragile. Infants are fragile. I was reminded when my sister had a baby a couple years ago um, how fragile babies are when they're born because, you know, she's very cute, and, but she can't even hold her head up. You know, she's so fragile. She needs to be tended to it every second. And, you know, holding your head up, basic life skill everybody needs, she can't even do that. And so it's a, it's a very fragile state for a new human. It's not that her life hasn't begun. It's just she's in a state right now where she needs extra special care if she's going to continue to thrive and to be sustained. Uh, and that's the same thing 
for us. Things happen, things need to happen in order for us to be sustained. And these are baby Christians that Paul sends Timothy to check on. The question is whether or not they understand themselves that way and whether or not we do. Um, as an example, um, my lovely wife is here, Jessica, and she has given me permission to say what I'm about to say. So in case you're wondering <laughs> about the state of my marriage, this is approved. So my wife is good at many things. Keeping plants alive has not been one of them. <laughs> she has gotten better, I will admit, but still. Um, my wife loves plants inside and outside. I prefer them outside where they belong. She also likes to bring them inside and have them all over our house. And here's what would happen. She would buy plants, and I'd be like, oh, that's a nice plant. And then the next week or two, maybe, I'd be like, hmm, this plant is dead. <laughs> and it happened so often, I was like, I'm sensing a pattern here, that every time I walk through my house, just the corpses of plants that used to be <laughs> are scattered around. And I thought, this, I, I don't think this is good. So I had to institute a ban in my home, no more plants, because, you know, when the Bible says you love your, you say you love your brother, but do you? That's how I feel about her. You say you love plants, but do you? Because you allow them to die these horrible deaths at your hand. She was a serial plant killer. And so what that means is I had to put that ban in place. But there was a compromise that we reached. I was like, you know, what about fake plants? Fake plants are great because they, they look real. Depending on where you get them from, they look real but they don't require the same maintenance. Because for a fake plant, um, you can forget it even exists. And you can just pop up two years later, it'll still be there looking exactly the same. Doesn't need to be watered, doesn't need sunlight. This is the kind of plant um, that even a cereal plant can have. Again, she's better now. This is just for our conversations later. Here's what happens. We treat our faith like it's that fake plant. Something that you can just put in the corner that doesn't need to be looked after, that doesn't need any attention, that you can completely forget about, and then when you pop up, it's in exactly the same state. Whereas Paul wants us to see our faith more like that real plant that needs sunlight and that needs water, that needs um, uh, things to nourish it so that it can thrive and grow. Um, and so it's Paul sends Timothy to check on them and to give them what they need to strengthen and encourage them. He's going to give them the water and the sunlight they need in order to grow. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you've arrived. And what Paul is going to point out is that there are particular dangers, right, that, that, that threaten our faith. Real dangers around us in our world. Verse 3, he says he doesn't want any, any of them to be unsettled by these trials. Verse 5, he says, I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you. Right? He's saying our faith is under attack, and he points to two main dangers, trials and the tempter. And this is part of what's important about not seeing our faith as a finished product is that our faith can be affected by life. It can be affected by the world around us. You can't just leave it in a corner. And so I want to look at those two, uh, those two main dangers that, that he brings up. The first one is, is trials. He says he doesn't want to be unsettled by these trials. I think he's mainly thinking of the afflictions that come from persecution, the very reason that he got uh, pushed out of Thessalonica. Those trials, they, they faced a, a kind of persecution that we're not as much familiar with uh, in the United States in our time, more severe than that. But that's not to say that we won't face anything. There will be pushback 
um, from, from trusting in Jesus. There will be uh, things that make us want to shy away. This is kind of natural human instinct. When something doesn't go right, we just naturally don't want to do that thing again. Right? You touch a stove and it burns, you don't touch it again. You have a conversation with somebody and it gets really strange, they start acting weird, then you, you don't want to have that conversation again. Um, and what can happen is over time, that can encourage us to lean away because we always want to take the easy road. We don't want to go against the current. We want to go the easy way. Uh, we can be unsettled by those trials. It's not just uh, persecution kinds of affliction, though. There are other kinds of trials that can shake our faith. Losing a loved one can shake our faith. Losing a job, dealing with mental illness, dealing with any other kinds of illness, the effects of aging, uh, uh, being broke, not having everything you need, being lonely. There are things that can make us question if God really is who he said he is and is as good as he said he is. And that's a danger to our faith. The other one he talks about is the tempter. Right? He's talking about Satan. I, I need you to understand that Satan wants to pull us away from God and he will tempt us with sin. Um, he, he can throw sin at us. He can throw doubts at us. And here's the thing. Satan is a master of false advertising. He knows how to make sin look like it's more appealing than whatever God has for us. Um, have, I don't know if you've ever seen like a fast food commercial where the food on the commercial looks way better than it's ever looked in real life on the ground. It's like when I see a Wendy's commercial and the burger's like perfectly square, I'm like, now you and me both know. Y'all have never served a burger with these perfect geometrical proportions. But that's how they get you in there. I remember seeing a, a commercial for something called Mac and Cheetos. It sounds disgusting. The way that they talked about it on the commercial, though, it sounded like an incredible American delicacy. <laughs> right? And, and so what happens is they trick you, they make it seem good, and then you come in, and then you realize you've wasted your time and your $1.99. <laughs> this is what Satan is good at. He is good at putting something in our faces and giving us a twisted version of it so that we begin to choose what he offers us over what God offers us. And we never explicitly know we're making, we never really say that to ourselves, right now I'm going to make a trade. I think that Satan has better things for me than God does. But this is the trade we're making. Satan is the tempter. He can tempt us away. And I want you to know, anytime I have talked to people about um, you know, if someone says, oh, I used to follow Jesus and now I don't, and I talk to them about the reasons, it's always around these two things, some kind of trial or difficulty in their life and some kind of sin that they were tempted away from God with. This is usually the areas that it's in. So I want to say, if you're in a season, a season where there are a lot of trying things happening in your life, I want you to know right now you're vulnerable. If you're in a season where there's a lot of temptation to sin or temptation that you've been given into, I want you to know that you're vulnerable, that these are the kinds of dangers to our faith that Paul wants to warn them about. Sin and pain are a danger, and we can't miss this because when we're under attack, it changes our entire posture. When you realize there's danger, it changes your, your posture. Um, I remember when my, my son was really young, six months old, he had bad eczema, and you know, so one day it's fine. We, we're putting the lotion on that the doctor asked him we're good, and then something happens, and there becomes an infection, and it's obvious is, is, you know, the infection is spreading all over his face and all over his arms, and there's a quick shift from we're going to stay at home, because he's fine, we'll just put this lotion on him, to he needs help, and we go to the hospital. 
There's a big difference between this kind of casual, we'll take care of it too. We obviously need help because something is in danger. Too many of us are casually strolling through our lives as if it's all good when we need to be treading carefully with caution. This is what Paul calls us to. And so I want to ask you, what are some ways that we can sometimes be careless with our faith, not understanding that we're under danger? One way is not uh, taking very seriously showing up on Sunday morning to gather with God's people. You know, we sometimes treat Sunday morning like it's an optional bonus we can add on if we slept good on Saturday night. When the Bible treats it as something much more important than that. I mean, when the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints together, it's, it's tied when, when he gives the reason. The reason is so that we can keep warning each other about sin so we can persevere in our following of Jesus. It's a very important part of our Christian life. It's careless uh, for us to not hold it in very high regard, especially if the reason we don't make it is because we kept telling ourselves on Saturday night, this is the last one I'm going to watch, and then your show ends on a cliffhanger, you're like, I can do one more, Right? What we're saying without saying it is, Sunday morning isn't that important to me. Uh, Other ways we can be careless with our faith, Uh, not spending time in God's Word. Our hearts do not stay in one place. When we're not feeding them with the Word of God, they're drifting away from God. Not spending time in prayer, living, living life as if we are just completely dependent on ourselves. We got this. We're good all by ourselves. Not communicating with the Lord, not, not, not giving time to relationships with other believers, as if you can just walk this difficult walk all by yourself, a hiding sin, a refusal to confess your sin to anybody else, right? These are ways that we're careless as if it's fine. Nothing to see here. When, when Paul is saying there's actually dangers around us, and so we should tread carefully. This is what he says in verse 6. This, this is... Um, uh, what the kind of report Timothy brings back. Verse 6, but Timothy's just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? In return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Timothy, sent on that doctor's house call, comes back with a good report. Right? He's saying they have fond memories of us, which means that all the naysayers who pushed them out, who said those guys are fake, who said that news isn't good and it's not real... Timothy says, no, they have fond memories of, they they remember us as we were. Verse 8, Paul says, now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul, he loves them so much that that his joy is tied to how they're doing, right? And and he even says, basically, if if you um, were not standing firm, it would be almost like my death. He says, we really live since you're standing firm. I want you to know there's a big contrast between the stuff he talked about earlier, being unsettled by trials... And then when he talks about here, standing firm in the Lord, those are opposite pictures. There's one that when the ground shakes, you go down. The other is when the ground shakes, you're able to stand firm in the midst of that. That brings Paul joy. He's saying that's the kind of faith that we hope to see. It's almost like um, 
like the, uh, the, the terminal train at an airport. And you get on it, and right before that, a voice comes over the intercom and says, hey, just so you know, this train is about to move. You should probably hold on to something. Often people ignore that, and the train goes, and then they go because they didn't listen to the warning. And when people fall from not listening to the warning, I never feel bad for them. <laughs> there was literally just a voice that said, just warning you, hold on. This text is God's voice coming over the intercom to us saying, here is a warning. There's shaky ground beneath you. Some stuff will move. Hold on. This is God telling us to hold on. And what he's told us to hold on to is these rhythms we're talking about. God's word, prayer, God's people, the things that he's given us uh, to hold on and to grow in our faith. Verse 10, he says, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see your face, see you face to face, and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Again, when he says lacking in your faith, he's not saying that, that, that you're not uh, saved by grace through faith. He's just saying your faith needs to mature and grow, and that faith itself isn't perfect. I hope you understand that what saves us is not the power or perfection of our individual faith. What saves us um, is the power and perfection of the one that we put our faith in. It's not the maturity of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. I hope you understand that faith by itself is not a virtue. Faith is neutral. What's a virtue is putting your faith in Jesus. There are millions of people who have a lot of faith. It just doesn't happen to be in one who can save. But faith in Jesus shows up in salvation because he is the Savior. It's what connects us to him. So what does it mean then for your faith to be in good shape? I mean, your faith is thriving, it's growing, it's standing firm. Is your faith growing? Or do you trust Jesus more now than you once did? One way that we can tell uh, that our faith may not be in a good spot is um, if we feel some kind of allergy or disdain for the things of God, if, if, if the things of God are unattractive to us and, and they repel us rather than pull us in, then, then there's something going on in our heart. That could be some particular teaching in the Bible. That could be the ways of God, the ways of God's people. Um, and if that doubt is being sown in your heart, I, I want you to, to not assume that you're being enlightened. I want you to assume that your soul is under attack. Sometimes we wrestle with doubts too, and we go and we think, I'm going to go over in a corner and deal with this by myself. And I want you to know you're under attack. The most dangerous place for you to be is isolated all by yourself. We, we can have those conversations with each other. I hope we know that the family of God is a place where we can talk about our doubts. The family of God is a place where we can talk about our struggles. And if none of us talk about our doubts and struggles, none of us will talk about our doubts and struggles. Because we'll think we're the only ones who ever have any doubts and struggles. Paul's saying we're in danger. We, we need to hold on. And just as he checks on them, I wonder how often you check on other people. I wonder if you ever pray for the spiritual health of somebody other than yourself. I want to encourage you to think about somebody, uh, either someone else in this church or another believer, just ask them, how's your faith? How's your faith? We want to have the kind of relationships where it's not weird to ask questions like that. Maybe you want to word it differently if that sounds a little overly Christian to you. But we want to say, how's your faith? 
And I also want to say, if somebody asks you, how's your faith? Don't be all defensive. Don't be like, how's your faith? I'm asking me how my faith is. Don't do that. Because then, again, we, that means we're not able to have these conversations, and we're buying into the lie that we don't need other people to check on us because our faith is good. There's no danger, which is just untrue. We're fragile. Our faith is fragile. Somebody should be asking Rodney, who's the lead pastor of this church, who was a godly, mature man, he needs brothers to ask him how's his faith. You don't reach some level of maturity where you don't need other people in your life anymore. I need to keep moving. Just because you believe doesn't mean you've arrived. Number one, your faith needs work. Number two, you need God to work. You need God to work. Um, I hope you know that faith and obedience is not something that we put together in a corner and then bring to God and show him. God is behind all of that. As an example, my son, uh, he uh, loves Legos. When he was real little, we we would build Lego stuff, and he... You know, um, we would get stuff and then we would build it together, which meant he sat there while I built it and then took credit for it afterwards. Because even his little baby finger sometimes couldn't even press the piece down, so I would press it down and then he would be like, Mommy, look what I made. And I'm just standing behind him shaking my head. And so one time we got something and he was like, I just want to make it now. He's like, Daddy, I know you're busy. Can I just make it now? And I was like, "Mm, I think there's a rude awakening on the other side of this. But he didn't want to listen, so he went off, and he wanted to do it himself, and he came back with a jumbled mess of pieces that didn't resemble the Batmobile on the box. <laughs> and here's what happened. He, we had been doing it together. He didn't realize that I was doing all the heavy lifting. So he got a little bit proud and thought he could do it by himself and come back and show me. And this is what we do when we act like, yes, we needed God in order to save our souls, but for the rest of the growing in Jesus, I got this now, God. You, you know what? I got this. L- let me put my sanctification together all over here, and then I'm going to show you what I've done, and I hope you're proud of me. When God is saying, I hope you understand, I've been doing all the heavy lifting the whole time. From faith unto faith, even as we grow in our faith, um, we need God's grace. We need God's power. The Scripture says that it's God who both wills and works in us to do His pleasure. God is at work and all of it. So we don't want to act like we get to bring it to him. It's also strange to come before God with pride as if somehow we've been killing it. Like we had a good week and we read the Bible every day, and now we come to God with our shoulders back a little bit. It's all by God's grace and his power. Verse 11, he, he says this. He, he's going to follow up what he's, uh, his encouragement, what God has already done, with a prayer that God is going to do more in their lives. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. It's a prayer for them, right? First, he, he prays that they'll be able to visit the Thessalonians because he loves them, wants to see them. Second, he asks God to increase and overflow uh, them to, uh, to cause them to increase and overflow with love for one another. You see, he's praying that God would cause that to happen, right? Because God is the one who, who's doing the heavy lifting. And um, he's excited about their faith, and he's praying that the love would continue. And, and I want you to understand that faith and love are always seen side by side. Faith and love are kind of like best friends who are inseparable. You never see one without the other. Um, 
And what will happen is sometimes we will think of love as a bonus that gets added to faith sometimes for the most spiritual people. Paul is saying, no, 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 Um, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor, and those two things will always be together. Jesus is, of course, the perfect example of love that we see in Scripture. This is how Scripture even gives us categories for love. For by this we know love, that Christ laid his life down for us. And then he says, and you also should lay down your life for one another. Um, And because we separate faith and love, sometimes we'll get to a spot where we'll gauge how we're doing as believers. And we'll look at all the stuff we think of as super spiritual, going to church and reading your Bible and, and praying, maybe only listening to a Christian radio station, whatever that is in your mind. But we won't look to love very often. We won't ask ourselves how we've been loving our brothers and sisters. We won't ask ourselves if we've encouraged anybody or spoken the truth in love to anybody. We won't really ask ourselves if we have even thought about our neighbors, much less tried to do good for our neighbors. This is Paul's prayer, that they would increase in love for one another as other believers and for others. Are you increasing in love for others? Has your love for others increased? This is Paul's prayer for them, and it's, a, it's one of the ways we can gauge how our faith is doing. Your love for God shows up in your love for others. This is why John, the Apostle John, when he writes, he, he says, look, you say you love your brothers, but... You say you love God, but you don't love those that you can see. You can't see God. You can see your brothers and sisters right in front of you, and you don't love them, so you're a liar. That's some boldness. John writes them a letter and says, y'all are a bunch of liars. Here's why. I love for our brothers and sisters, and I love for our neighbors. It's almost like a lie detector test for our love for God. You say you love God. Let me look at this lie detector test, your love for your neighbor and for others, and I'll be able to tell you if that's the truth. We, we also want to pray with Paul that we be able to increase in love and overflow with love for one another and for others. Verse 13 is the third thing he prays. He says, may he make your hearts blameless in his holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. He says, blameless in holiness. Nothing we can be blamed for. No fault found in us. And I think right here he is talking about a perfect blameless. And he says, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. I mean, Jesus comes back and we stand before the Father And the Father looks at us and and calls us blameless in holiness. We're talking about before the God who the Bible doesn't just say he has light. The Bible says God is light. In him there's no darkness. The God who has never sinned. The God who, you know, if you look in our lives back a couple minutes or a couple hours, you will find sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful intentions. If you look at the last thousand years of God's track record, you will find no sin. You look at the last million years, you look at the last billion years through all of eternity past, you will never be able to find a single sinful action thought. You will never find a lack of compassion, a lack of love. You will find nothing but absolute, perfect, pure holiness. And that's the standard that God holds us to, and yet we will stand before him blameless in holiness. 
Jesus will make us perfect. That Jesus will present us, that we're not trying to make ourselves holy and blameless and then present ourselves to God. Jesus said, I'm going to come and live the perfect holy life. I'm going to give them my record and then I'll present them to the Father. God presents us to himself. I wonder if you ever think about your your faith in light of the second coming of Jesus. That's what the book of 1 Thessalonians is so much about, that Jesus is coming back. And he's promised that when he comes back, we'll be blameless in holiness before God. Our future is secured by his past, what he's done. So look, if our hope for our eternity is based on us and what we can do in between now and our last days, we don't have any hope. Because even as we grow, we couldn't be good enough But Jesus grabs a hold of us and presents us to God. So if you ever look at your life and the trajectory of your growth isn't going as fast as you would hope and pray, I love that that's your desire. I want to encourage you to continue in that. I just don't want you to base all of your hope on your performance. Our ultimate hope is in what Jesus has already done for us. Don't don't let your sin overpower and overshadow the grace and the love and the power of Jesus. Right? So we... Our faith needs work, but we need God to work. God is the one who does this in us, and God is the one who presents us to himself in blamelessness. There may be some people here today who are thinking, man, if I am standing before the God of the universe, I don't think blameless and holiness is how God would judge me. We all have stuff we can be blamed for and that we should be. And we can just try to do better. We can try to do better and say, I would like to be blameless for God. Let me just try harder. But sometimes we try and fail. Often we do. And even if we could learn to be better and be perfect from here on out, we still have all the sin that we've already committed. How can we be perfect, holy, and blameless before God? So you may say, yes, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of making a lot of mistakes, but Jesus says, I can make you blameless. Right? You may say, no, I've, I've made a lot of people hurt, but Jesus says, I can make you blameless. You might say, no, 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 but I'm guilty of lying. Jesus says, but I can make you blameless. You might say, no, I'm guilty of lust. Jesus says, I can make you blameless. You may say, no, 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 I'm guilty of bitterness. Jesus says, I can make you blameless. Put whatever you want in that first blank. Jesus still says, I can make you blameless. And this is an offer that he makes to all of us because of what he's already done. Right, there's a long list of stuff that we can be blamed for. I want you to know that Jesus goes to the cross and he pays for sins. And that as Jesus takes the debt of sinners on himself, takes what we deserve on him, we can be forgiven of it. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or you're not really sure where you are with Jesus, I want you to know this is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. I can make you blameless. He calls those who are weak and weary to come to himself. And if you're here today, you're discouraged in your growth and your faith. I want, I want to remind you that Jesus does the heavy lifting. And he's called us to trust him, to follow after him, to lean into the thing, the rhythms that he's given us to grow. And he's going to make us more and more like him. And he one day will present us perfect in holiness and blamelessness before his God. 
So I, I want us to hold those two things together, that our faith does need work, but that we ultimately need God to work. So that as you look at your life and you, um, you ask yourself, am I there yet? If the end goal is holiness, am I there yet? I want you to look to the second coming of Jesus and the promises of Jesus so that the answer will be, no, I'm not there yet, but I will be. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for sending such a loving and kind Savior for us. God, we thank you for such a powerful gospel. God, we thank you for the ways that you turned us around when we were running from you. God, and we pray you to help us to rejoice in your good news, Father. I pray for my friends who are here today who don't know Jesus or are not sure if they know Jesus. God, I pray that you would help them to see your love and your grace, God. And I pray for those of us who do know you, God, that you would help us to grow in our faith, that you would protect us, God, that we would protect each other. God, that we would trust in your power to keep us while also trusting you enough to fight to obey what you've called us to. And God, we cannot wait for the day when your son comes back. When the clouds are rolled back as a scroll. The judge is before us, and yet somehow... You say, enter into the joy of your master. We're blown away that that's even possible. But we're grateful and pray that that truth would fuel our obedience now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.